0: Welcome to Time Travelling Teamp, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy.
1: And I'm Trisha. Today we'll journey with our tardis crew to the Mysterious Space Museum. We'll be talking about the characters and give your thoughts on the story as a whole.
0: We would also love to hear your thoughts on this story to, and to join the discussion you can check us out at Time Teamp on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. That's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P or you can email us at time traveling at teamproductions.com. Now though, on to the story recap. Episode 1, The Space Museum The Tardis lands on a planet covered in a myriad of other spaceships surrounding a large building. When the crew regain the ability to move, they notice that all their clothes have been changed back to their normal attire. The Doctor doesn't seem to think of this as a big deal, much to the shock of the others. Vicky goes to get the Doctor a glass of water, but on the way back she stumbles and it falls to the floor, smashing and spilling its contents everywhere. Much to her amazement, the glass reassembles itself, with the water flowing back into it and the whole lot jumps back into her hand, almost as if the whole sequence of events was running backwards. The others are looking at the outside through the scanners and see the collection of ships. The Doctor informs them that their readings are safe, but Barbara voices her uncertainty, stating that their track record for safe environments has rarely proven very positive. Vicky returns and tells the Doctor what happened, but misreads his uncertainty as complete doubt. Before they can discuss it any further, the Doctor announces that the building is most likely a museum of some type, noting that all the ships outside seem to be running in chronological order based on their designs and technology. He then suggests that they go outside to take a look and they will hopefully find the answer to the mysterious goings on. Outside Vicky shows the Doctor a rock formation in an unusual state of erosion and theorizes that the planet itself is extinct. Due to the potential dangers that the planet could hold, the Doctor suggests that they all stick together as they go take a look at the buildings and they saw on the scanner. As they move off, Ian notices that even though the ground has a heavy layer of dust on it, they are not leaving any footprints. They arrive at the entrance to the building, but can't see any way of opening the doors. Barbara points out that there is absolutely no sound around them, which unnerves the group even more. Suddenly, the door behind them opens, and they catch a glimpse of someone coming through it, so they go into hiding. Unfortunately, Vicky inhales some of the dust, causing her to sneeze, Rice's two spiky haired, white uniformed figures from the building pass by, but oddly enough, they do not seem to hear her, even though they were only a few feet away. The confused group decide to go into the museum and are amazed at all the technical marvels that they witness before them. As they explore the exhibits, they come across a Dalek, which gives the group a start. As Ian and Barbara give a brief history of their encounters with the Daleks to a less than impressed Vicky, the Doctor alerts them to the sound of approaching footsteps. They go into hiding again, just as three black-clothed youths with ridges above their eyebrows enter the exhibit room. They discuss something that the group can't make out and then leave again. Their curiosity grows as they continue their exploration and Vicky goes to touch one of the exhibits, recoiling in shock as her hand goes right through it. As they discuss this, two of the black-clothed individuals and another one of their comrades come into the room. The doctor tells them to stay still and they watch as the men completely ignore them and move on. Ian says that they must be invisible to the people on the planet... But the doctor hypothesizes a much more sinister solution and wonders if they are really there in the first place. As they go further into the museum they come across an exhibit that appears to be the TARDIS and Ian and Barbara and Vicky suggest leaving but the doctor tells them it isn't that simple and shows them it is as intangible as the other exhibits. He then expands to his earlier hypothesis by drawing their attention to another corner of the room where they see themselves standing motionless in display cases. Vicky realises what is going on and explains to Ian and Barbara that they are somehow occupying the third and fourth dimensions of reality, simultaneous existing in both. Barbara asks the Doctor will they be able to escape and he tells her that he is unsure as he has never been able to fully master the fourth dimension. He says that they most likely jumped the time track and Darren could potentially lie their salvation as what they see before them might only be a potential future. He says that in order for their bodies to be in the cases, it must mean that they arrived on the planet at some time in the future in order to be imprisoned in them, and they need only wait in the museum until time catches up on itself. Just as he explains this, Barbara begins to complain of a strange sensation, and suddenly, they all stop moving. Back on the planet's surface, the two men from the museum approach the TARDIS, and see the footprints leading away from it begin to materialize in the sand. It seems time is indeed catching up on itself, and back inside the museum, the bodies and the cases themselves fade from reality. The group regain mobility, and the doctor announces that they have arrived. Episode 2. The Dimensions of Time In an office in the museum, two of the white uniformed men are discussing their tenure there. They are from the planet Morok, and one of them is the governor in charge of the planet Zaras, where the museum is located. As they are talking, one of the men from earlier comes in and announces the discovery of the TARDIS. He also informs them of the presence of the travellers and the governor sends out a message to the museum's security forces to apprehend the travellers before they encounter the local dissident groups. The local dissidents are actually the black-clothed individuals that were seen earlier in the museum. Two of them are discussing their struggles with the Moroks when a third member named Thor enters and informs them of the arrival of the TARDIS. Thor implores the leader Sita to reach out to the new arrivals as they could be allies with technologies and weapons to help them beat the Moroks. In the exhibit room, Ian is examining a weaponry display and decides to use one of them to act as a bluff. Barbara, on the other hand, says that they need to be cautious, as they need to avoid completing the chain of events that saw them imprisoned in the cabinets. Vicky says that if they can find the TARDIS, then maybe they can avoid the events altogether, but the Doctor says unless they know exactly what will happen, travelling in the TARDIS could be dangerous. They seem to be completely hamstrung as to what to do. After much contemplation, the doctors suggest that they should at least leave the museum and locate the TARDIS to prevent it ending up in the museum. However, things do not get off to a good start when they realise that they can't remember how to get back to the entrance due to the maze-like appearance of the museum's corridors. As they make their way through the museum, they are followed by the three Zarons. They are wary of the group due to Ian being armed and resolved to capture either the Doctor or Vicky to use as leverage in their in- interactions with the rest of the group. As the travellers continue on, the Doctor pauses to look at an exhibit and is ambushed by the Xerons. He collapses to the floor but is actually playing possum and observes the trio as they panic over what they think they have done. Sita and Tor leave to find something to help bring him around and tell the other member of the group, Dako, to keep lookout. When they come back, they see Dako tied up and no sign of the Doctor. He tells the others he has no idea what happened and so they set off in search of the Doctor. After they leave, the Doctor emerges from his hiding space, the shell of the Dalek exhibit. However, as he leaves the room, he is apprehended by two Morak guards. The others have noticed his disappearance and their frustrations come to the boil as they argue back and forth over how he could have been captured and how to proceed in a way that doesn't land them in the display cases. Ian suggested they keep going in the hopes that either they or the Doctor would find their way back to each other. They seem to be wandering around in circles though and Ian gets a wave of inspiration to recreate the legend of the Minotaur. Using a reluctant barber's cardigan, they intend to leave a trail of string behind him to prevent going around in circles. The doctor is in a holding cell, trying to find any weak points. Taking a brief rest, he sits in a chair in the cell, but a metal band fastens itself around his waist, trapping him. He is then interrogated by the governor, who introduces himself as Lobos. He says the museum is a monument to the glory of the Moroc Empire, but it is no longer as heavily visited as it once was. He asks the doctor where he came from and where his companions are, but the doctor treats it like a game until Lobos reveals the sneaky nature of his interrogation technique. The chair that the doctor is in is capable of reading his subconscious, and by asking him questions, Lobos is able to use the machine to display images of the others' last known location within the museum. However, the doctor then turns the tables by toying with the machine, by bringing up humorous images. The others reach the end of the tread, but there is no sign of a way out. Ian goes to take a look around and Barbara expresses her doubts to Vicky that they can overcome their prospective future. However, Ian comes back and shows them the exit door. Unfortunately, they open the doors just as the TARDIS is being brought into the museum. Meanwhile, Lobos grows frustrated with the doctor's sabotaging of the interrogation machine and orders the guards to take him to the preparation room to be turned into a specimen for the museum. Episode 3. The Search Several Zerons come to take a look at the newly arrived TARDIS but are turned away by the Morrox. Ian spies on them through a crack in the door and witnesses the security commander arrive and give out to his men over the fact that they cannot access the TARDIS. He laments that Lobos will more than likely blame him as he does with everything else that goes wrong in the colony. Just then, Lobos appears to inspect the new acquisition. As the commander predicted, Lobos derides him for not gaining access to the TARDIS and for not finding the others in the museum. As Ian, Barbara and Vicky continue to spy on the events going on outside, they fail to notice a Morak guard sneak up on them. He draws a gun on them, but Barbara stops Ian from retaliating, saying it could lead to his death. They again show frustration over the fact that they cannot take any action due to not knowing whether it may lead them to their future in the cases or not. Ian decides to take a risk and banks on the fact that the guard was most likely ordered to bring them in alive. He distracts the guard and wrestles with him for control of the gun, but the commotion draws the attention of the group outside. He tells Barbara and Vicky to run and they race back into the museum before Lobos and his men enter. Lobos orders Ian to be taken to his office, but he manages to break free and incapacitate the guards transporting him. In their escape, Barbara and Vicky get separated, and Barbara hides in a storage room, which is locked by the guards after they inspect it. Vicky is grabbed by the Zarons, who try to explain their intentions to her, after telling her that the Morrochs took the doctor. In order to show their good fate, Tor sends Daco to find Barbara, and together they will try and find Ian. Ian has circled back to the TARDIS and attacks the Morroc, at guarding it. He holds him at gunpoint and demands to know where the doctor is. The guard tells him he is in the preparation chamber, but they'll both be killed if they are caught interfering with the process. Ian refuses to relent and forces the guard onwards. Back in his office, Lobos receives a directive from the Morakai command, instructing him to deal with the growing rebel presence in the area. He decides to kill two birds with one stone and orders that the air emitters be attuned to release vast quantities of Zafra gas, which is a paralytic and will immobilize the travelers for their conversion of the specimens and the Xerons into easy targets for annihilation. Dako arrives at the storage room and, after almost getting knocked out by her, retrieves Barbara. However, before they can leave, they are paralyzed by the gas seeping into the room. Tor and Sita are explained the current status of life on Xeros to Vicky. After the Morox invaded, they wiped out the adult population and made slaves of all the children. Once they began to reach adulthood, they were shipped off to different planets under Morak control. They explain that despite their superior numbers, they do not have the necessary weapons to defeat the Morak forces on Zeros. Vicky suggests that they infiltrate the armory and take the weapons that they need. Thor says that it will not be as easy as that, as the armory is protected by a sophisticated defense system that seems to operate as a lie detector. Vicky decides that in order to change the future, she may as well see if she can overcome the machine. They arrive at the armory and knock out the guard. They approach the doors and the computer comes online, asking a series of questions based on security protocol and permissions that make it nearly impossible for them to bluff their way past it. Tor and Sita state that they have no hope of succeeding, but Vicky rouses them by asking for their help in gaining access to the interior of the machine. She begins to tinker with it and the results pay off as she has rewired the machine to answer different questions and accept her answers. Tor and Sita begin to raid the armory and Vicky hopes that it will be enough to change their fate. Meanwhile, on their way to Lobos's office, Ian and the guard are nearly caught by the security commander. The guard tells the commander that he has been summoned to Lobos's office and that a replacement is guarding the TARDIS. Once he leaves, Ian and the guard arrive at Lobos's office and Ian demands to be brought to the doctor, but he is told it is too late as he is already in the second stage of the preparation cycle. He is then shown the preparation room and is shocked at what he sees before him. Episode 4 – The Final Phase it's the final countdown The Doctor is on a slab being bombarded by some sort of ray Ian demands that Lobos reverse the process despite his comments that it is useless as the Doctor is as good as dead At their hideout, Vicky, Tor, and Sita are distributing the weapons to their fellow prisoners in preparation for a raid on the military barracks Vicky says she intends to go back to the museum to find the others Tor tries to convince her to go after the assault in the barracks in order to ensure that she will be safe in doing so and not raise the alarm but she insists on going now. Tor tells Sita to go with her to protect her. At the TARDIS, the security commander comes across a group of his men attempting to cut into the TARDIS. He discovers that the guard lied to him about his replacement and orders some of the cutting crew to come with him to investigate what's going on, leaving one of them behind to guard the TARDIS. Back at the preparation room, Ian grows impatient as he waits for the doctor to be revived. He eventually comes too, but he is very weak from the process. As Ian is making sure the doctor is okay, Lobos orders the guard to rush him, but he is not quick enough. However, Ian doesn't kill him as he thinks the man isn't fully committed to Lobos' orders, a theory that the doctor seems to validate by saying he was still conscious during the preparation process and was observing and listening to the events transpiring on the planet. As he and Ian discuss their plans to find the others, the security commander and his men sneak into the office. They knock out Ian and once more the doctor finds himself at the mercy of the gloating Lobos. Barbara comes to, not being fully affected by the gas, and starts to pull Daco to safety. However, the guard outside the TARDIS hears their coughing and spluttering and prepares to take them into custody after calling their presence in to Lobos. Lobos, in the meantime, orders the guard to be placed under arrest due to his ineptitude, but finds that he cannot raise the barracks on the radio when he tries to order them to take Barbara and Daco into custody. He marks it down due to faulty equipment and then goes to boast to the doctor and Ian about Barbara's impending capture. Barbara and Dako exit the museum but are immediately apprehended by the guard. Their imprisonment is short-lived though as Vicky and Sita arrive with Sita killing the guard. Vicky and Barbara reunite and Vicky explains to her about how the course of their future will change now that the revolution has started. Unfortunately, their joy is short-lived as the security commander and the guard appear, killing Sita and knocking Dako unconscious. He takes the women prisoner again and brings them to Lobos' office. He shows Lobos the weapons he took from Sita, which causes him concern as they cannot contact the armory either. He takes solace in the fact that the travelers will soon be specimens in the museum. In the preparation room, Ian vents his frustrations at their recapture by smashing the paralyzing ray, but the doctor points out that there is more than likely spares for it. They again discuss the nature of their impending future and how nothing they did seemed to have changed its course. However, Vicky and the Doctor say that the impact they have had since their arrival could change the future for them, with Vicky stating the revolution could be what frees them. As if on cue, Thor arrives at the museum with his forces after they successfully destroyed the barracks and routed the Morocc troops. They eliminate the guards outside it and Tor revives Dako, who tells him what happened to Vicky and the others. Thor and his men arrived at the preparation room just in time to save the travellers from Lobos and the security commander killing the boat and thus freeing their planet from Morak control for the time being. Outside the TARDIS, the Doctor shows Ian and Barbara a broken piece of the ship's dimensional control, saying that it is the reason that they landed at two different points in time, as it started the materialisation process, but stalled briefly, causing the time to lapse. He goes to collect Vicky, who is trying to convince Thor not to destroy the entire museum in an effort to remove any reminders of Morak influence on the planet. Before he can back up Vicky's arguments, Ian and Barbara ask him what the new piece of equipment that is being placed into the TARDIS is. He tells them it is a time-space visualizer that he found in the museum and that Tor gave him permission to take. He promises to show them how it works later and they all say goodbyes to Tor before disembarking. On a nearby moon, a Dalek monitoring station reports that the TARDIS is currently in the vortex and the Dalek commander dispatches one of their newly created time machines to pursue it and exterminate their greatest enemies. End of the story. <laughs> so now that's the story recap out of the way we're going to go over to trish for some trivia notes so over to you trish
1: thanks buddy so the writer for today's story the space museum was glenn jones this is glenn's only doctor who writing credit and he was apparently not very happy With the edits that were made to the script by Dennis Spooner who was the script editor of the show at the time. Apparently his original script had a lot more humor in it and he felt a lot of the humor had been removed. Dennis Spooner had apparently said that it was a bit too humorous for what he saw as you know a good sci-fi story. Writing wasn't Glynn's only skill though he was also a theater director and an actor. He returned to Doctor Who in an acting capacity to play Krantz in the fourth Doctor story The Suntaran Experiment mm. which I actually really liked him in that story I'm
0: trying to remember him from that one
1: he was the guys that are on Earth mm. obviously because mm-hmm. he wasn't the Suntaran he was the leader no he wasn't the leader he was the older gentleman who captures Tom right he had a good beard
0: yeah I think it's like Celine Dion it's all coming back to me
1: <laughs> anyway, Glynn was one of only five people to work on the show as both a writer and an actor, the others being Vicar Pemberton, Derek Sherwin, Mark Gattis, and Toby Whithouse. Glynn passed away in twenty fourteen. The director of this story was Mervyn Pinfield. We have discussed Mervyn before as he previously directed some episodes of The Censorites and Planet of Giants. He was also the show's associate producer for the first season and a half, From An Unearthy Child Up to the Romans. Mervyn passed away in 1966. I
0: suppose it's kind of sad and bittersweet, like that Mervyn passed away just when the, the his era of the Doctor was finishing up. So when William Hartnell moved away from the role, Mervyn passed away. It's it's kind of weirdly, scarily poetic in some way.
1: Yeah, but I, the one thing I'm glad of though is that he obviously put a lot into the show. You know, as the associate producer with Verity. Mm-hmm. I am glad that, like, I mean, it was massive by 1965 oh yeah even in 1963 and 1964 it was massive yeah so at least he got to see it you know he got to see the success that it would be Mm. it would have been very disappointing if like doctor who didn't really you know kick off until like 1967 in terms of a fan base and he missed it yeah so at least he got to see that
0: true very true
1: the air date for the story was the 24th of april to the 15th of may 1965. The Space Museum was the first, though by no means the last, Doctor Who story to tackle the idea of alternative timelines. It's something that will come up again. Mm-hmm. The first episode of this story begins with a brief reprise of the final scene of the Crusade. And this is the only clip, or this clip is the only surviving footage from the Crusade's final episode, The Warlords, which we discussed last week, is a missing episode.
0: Yeah it's it's strange like you know when you hear about like you know the missing episodes and the missing stories and like some of them are completely missing uh but the only surviving footage of them might be the start of next week's story
1: yeah it's one of the things that makes me kind of glad that the stories all fed one directly into the other Mm. because at least you do have the option in some cases to have at least you get to see what the actors actually looked like or something like that yeah it's holiday time again for the cast of doctor who this time it's for william hartnell who was on holiday during the filming of episode three and so only appears in the reprise from episode two mm-hmm. and on to our cast so tor is played by jeremy bullock this is the first of two doctor who acting credits for jeremy the second coming in the third doctor story the time warrior where he plays hal but Jeremy's probably known to most sci-fi fans as the body of Boba Fett. He was the guy in the suit, though he didn't provide the voice.
0: Either time. in that right? Because even in the original... Cut, yeah, no, he
1: was never the voice. He's only the guy in the suit.
0: And after meeting him at a convention, I can say that Jeremy Bullock is one of the nicest people out there. He is just a complete oh, yeah. gentleman.
1: He is... He is so, so nice. The one regret I have from that meeting of him is I have discovered now that I made a bad choice that day. So on the day I got him to sign a picture of Boba Fett because mm. it was a Star Wars event. Yeah, He actually very rarely signs pictures of Hal the Archer. And like if you're going through like, you know, there's a lot of online um auctions and sellings at the moment of autographs because of lockdown and everything they're all of him as boba fett they're very rare to get him as hal the archer and i'm kicking myself i didn't get him to sign one as hal instead And
0: it wasn't for lack of trying because he did try to sweet talk you into getting that second <laughs> autograph
1: yeah but you know yeah i would have had to pay for both of them but at the time i wasn't exactly flush with <laughs> cash <laughs> Uh, no, a bit but flush now either.
0: Like he's he was there with his wife, and like they were just like they're a lovely couple. They're very nice people.
1: Yeah, they were lovely.
0: If if he's ever at a convention, definitely go just uh, meet him. And even if it's just to get like a, a kind of a nice to meet you type thing, he'll make time for you.
1: Yeah, he's great. On to Sita, he's played by Peter Sanders. This is Peter's only Doctor Who acting credit. He was also in Fact and Fiction, Yorkie, The Dick Emery Show, and The Ever Present.
0: Zedcars, we're on the board.
1: Yes, we are. Peter passed away in 2019. Daco is played by another Peter, this time Peter Craze. This is the first of three Doctor Who appearances for Peter Craze. He would return to Who to play DuPont in the War Games and Costa in Nightmare of Eden. His other acting credits include Blake Seven, Bergerac, The Bill, EastEnders and... Zedcars. Yes. Yes. Lobos was played by Richard Shaw. Again, we have the first of three Doctor Who appearances for Richard. He would return to play Cross in Frontier in Space and Locke, I think is how you pronounce it, in Underworld.
0: It sounds like you're describing his temperament. You know, he played Cross in Frontier in Space.
1: <laughs> hey, that's that, 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 that's the name. What can I do about it?
0: Next week, he plays Whimsy. <laughs>
1: Richard's other acting credits include Matlock, Coronation Street, The Famous Five, Softly Sloppy, Freewheelers, and again...
0: And of Alphabet Automobiles. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. We have to Zed think Kars.
0: of new ways to say Z cars. otherwise it just gets very repetitive and boring.
1: <laughs> Richard passed away back in 2010. Lastly, as the security commander, we have Ivor Salter. Again, first of three Doctor Who appearances for Ivor. He would return to play Odysseus in The Mythmakers and Sergeant Markham in Black Orchid. His other acting credits include Dixon of Doc Green, The Avengers, Sherlock Holmes, The Sweeney, All Creatures Great and Small, and surprisingly, not well,
0: there There has to be someone that has to branch out, I suppose.
1: <laughs> yeah. He passed away back in 1991. So that was our trivia segment for the day. And now we move on to our character discussion. So Paddington, what did you think of the Doctor?
0: I think that the Doctor in this one is, he's great. Uh, The Yoda Doctor has returned. (laughs) So for our listeners, for people that haven't seen the Space Museum, when when he's inside the Dalek shell, he starts to mimic the voice, and he's there with the plunger and the gun going around. He goes, I tricked them, ha ha ha, ha ha. It's just... And then he comes out with this big, sh- cheeky, shit-eating grin. It's amazing.
1: I think that episode should have been called The Doctor and the Dalek. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been a much better title than whatever the hell it was. <laughs>
0: um, overall, like this one is... As you kind of said, it I think it unintentionally came across as a bit as a bit comedic, because um, like unlike you know say the Romans where it had the whole acting and music to make it comedic, this one was coming across as very serious. Except in parts by the doctor, like you know when he starts, you know fucking with the machine and he pulls up pictures of the old big uh, penny farting bikes and all this type of stuff. To you know, at low buses, going. Stop it! Stop that! Stop what I say. It's like a principal scolding a naughty child.
1: Yeah, I, I, I get that.
0: But like, it's the one thing I love about Hartnell is that whatever he he successfully makes you believe that whatever he is acting, he is actually currently feeling. So, like, yes. after he gets revitalized, or no, after he gets you know brought out of the preparation cycle by Ian. Like he acts like again an old man as opposed to like you know the swashbuckler he'd been at the start and it's like Jesus Christ would someone please get William Hartnell a chair and a cup of tea
1: <laughs> yeah like for for people who've only watched New Who and who are only now going back to watch classic you know you need to bear in mind that at this point in time Time Lords Gallifrey Regeneration they weren't a thing yet hmm so, the Doctor going on about his rheumatism.
0: <laughs> oh, it, it, it's it's amazing. Like, we even had it back in Marco Polo, you know, where it's like, you know, the can and the Doctor are getting into, like, a who's the most crippled old man competition.
1: Yeah, and even, like, back in Marco Polo, the Doctor with the cold. You know, that wouldn't yeah. happen nowadays. It wouldn't even happen... I mean, Ford didn't care about walking around Antarctica in just his normal clothes.
0: Hmm, Yeah.
1: But yeah, it is good to see, I think in this story we get to see the many sides of the Doctor. Mm-hmm. So we have the impish trickster in the Doctor and the Dalek. We get um, impressions of the fighter side of him. You know, the fact that like mm-hmm. he was able to knock out the kid and tie him up <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> escape. We do get the old man, and we also get the intelligent man who's able to outsmart a computer.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, I I think that whatever people may say about this story, that this is a great so- showcase for Hartnell. Like like a lot of stories that have come before it, these are the ones that kind of just really cement his status of the, as the Doctor.
1: Yeah, and it's really who the heart of Doc 1 is. Mm. You know, he's all of these things rolled up into one person
0: oh yeah so uh that's it for the doctor for me i think
1: yeah i didn't really have much else um i'll get to this later but like there's not really a whole lot that the doctor does but the bits that he does do he does very well part of this being obviously that will william hartnell was out for one week so
0: yeah and kind of like just beating up kids and sitting in chairs for the rest of it yeah sure enough. <laughs> so how about we move on to our uh i was going to say i can't say dynamic trio because that doesn't really roll off the tongue terrific trio <laughs> traveling dynamic trio and vicky yeah th- th- yeah we could do that although that's a bit of a slight on vicky but <laughs>
1: no she's her own person she doesn't need someone else that's true cool so who do you want to start with
0: so how about we start with the person that's uh the solo act in this one uh vicky
1: finally vicky has something important to fucking do yeah if there's one thing about this story that i like is that we actually get to see vicky not only talk about how intelligent she is and not only show that great sense of adventure that she has but all that gets to come to a peak where she actually does something yeah which is great no, ab-
0: absolutely like isn't like this is this is I think since she's joined the crew, this is her showcase story. Like oh, she definitely. comes across, comes across, like you know, she's tough. She's resourceful. As you said, like she can actually back up the intelligence that she keeps going on about. Um, because I suppose that she's a bit more in her wheelhouse now that she's in a, she, she's in a location at a time that probably suits her education a bit more.
1: Yeah. Which I, I really, really like because I'd said over the last couple of weeks that Vicky wasn't really doing much and I was kind of getting to the point where I was like do I not like Vicky as a companion? Because I didn't want to not like her you know. but I think this story it really is, it's a good good showing from Vicky and what I think is really great, and I don't know if you saw this the same way I did what I think is really great and what I think is hopefully inspirational for younger viewers of the show Mm. is that it wasn't her bravery that turned the tide of the rebellion on this planet it certainly helped she is very brave but it was her intellect yeah it was her intelligence her ability to understand the computer to get into it to rewire it that's what turned the tide of the rebellion it wasn't just her being brave and running in all gung-ho it was that she outsmarted this amazing security system that the rebels on this planet had been fighting against for years and they couldn't get past it.
0: I think that kind of comes down to Maureen O'Brien, the the actress that plays Vicky, because like back when we were discussing Susan before, like we said that Caroline Ford has this sort of otherworldly feel about her. Yeah. Like if we even go back to the unaired pilot, you know, when Susan was a bit more kind of mysterious and in a sort of a very kind of seductive way like Carolyn Ford just kind of oozes that whereas with Maureen O'Brien Maureen O'Brien is very kind of you know wide-eyed and fresh-faced so like it there's that whole kind of deception thing of you know when she does rewire the machine and it's like this whole kind of I'm very proud of myself for doing this type thing and again it's yeah. like the type of thing that she doesn't need to be like Ian or even in some cases Barbara she doesn't need to use her brawn to you know, solve an issue that can be solved with brain
1: Yeah, and what I love as well is that, like, it only takes her, like, a couple of questions when they're first trying to get into the armory. You have the two boys who are like, oh no, it's it's a waste of time, it'll know. And she's just like, shut up, shut up, give me a second. (laughs) Let the questions play through. Okay, I figured it out. Get me into this panel and I'll get us in. And you're like, go on. Use that amazing future brain of yours
0: and let's not take away from the fact that if this machine is all fucking powerful like it can be rewritten that easily it's like she's showing off her, like, her technical acumen and it's like finally I can get Barbara to you know realise that I'm I'm smart
1: I I don't think Barbara ever questioned because no I
0: mean, no no not at all but it's like because like again as I said like, she was never in a scenario that she could actually show off her aptitude you know
1: yeah it was all talk not any yeah. action and this time we got to see her intelligence in action which I love
0: I also love her little kind of you know but I was going to say at first moments you know like when people are you know, like okay like the, the adults are talking and she just kind of throws a little bit of a huff like she's oh, she's so cute
1: yeah but like she's also the one who kind of works out the whole fact that like she's the one that explains to Ian and Barbara what's mm. happening yeah you know she dumbs it down for them <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh duh. Like I, I think this is a a really good showing for Vicky.
1: Yeah. Very good.
0: So moving on to the dynamic duo. Um who are we going to talk about first?
1: Um I think we should talk about Barbara first. But I will point out I do have one line that applies to them both. Which is mm-hmm. at one point Mummy Barbara and Daddy Ian are fighting and I don't like it. No. I really don't like when they're at odds with each other because it gets really visceral Mm. when they do the two of them fighting it makes you uncomfortable to watch it and you just want it to be over (laughs) it's similar to back in the Daleks you know when they had that argument about the Thals Mm -hmm. and yeah I I didn't like them fighting
0: no but then again you never like to see besties fight
1: no so if we talk about Barbara first, I think this story is a bit Barbara light when it comes to the action. But that's okay. Mm. The woman needs a week off from saving the universe. She's, a- yep. she's allowed. What I do love, though, is that even when she's being rescued by Dako, she is the one who ends up rescuing him and urging him onward through the smoke, refusing to leave without him in true yeah. Mama Barbara style
0: oh no big time it's a case of like she's almost like i know that i don't think you've seen it but she's almost like uh, mickey from the rocky movies it's like come on get up you son of a bitch i didn't hear no bell <laughs> <laughs> i'm not even in the
1: movies but i'm familiar with the character just in general
0: yeah so like no or even or even for me just kind of kind of going off on it at various points in time um but yeah no it's like that whole thing of you know barbara has this thing of where she when she gets involved in a conflict she seems to take it on really personally almost Mm. in in the sense of like you know okay i'm here i'm involved with these people now i'm going to do my damnedest to make sure that i can save whoever i can save like when she was in the Dalek invasion of earth despite the fact that it was you know initially she was going to be used as uh i'm going to say kitchen staff like she ends up doing the whole thing of kind of dragging Jenny around the places like, and Jenny is the actual member of the resistance. So here again it's not to the same extent but she is very come on we, we've got to do this to make sure that one year's safe and we can get home as well.
1: Yeah I think one of the things that we see in Barbara throughout the show so mm. starting with the unearthly child so we see it less so in that story and, and going right up to now is she has this unending well of internal strength Mm. that she can tap into and she does willingly tap into over and over and over again even when she's you know from a certain perspective even when she's the one who's in jeopardy you know thinking about the crusade last week Mm -hmm. thinking about the romans thinking about reign of terror this story even when you would assume oh well she'll just pass out and someone will have to save her she has this unending strength of will almost Mm -hmm. that is quite amazing to watch and after last week's discussion of the crusades i actually um started reading the target novel i didn't have time to read it before we recorded last week And the target novel for the Crusade, it opens with a little bit of explaining how Ian and Barbara have changed over their time Uh with the Doctor. Now, the description of Ian is amazing. They're almost describing him as as, like this bronze Adonis who's like (laughs) all muscly, and which is just fantastic. And I'm sure William Russell (laughs) loved that depiction. (laughs) But with Barbara, they're like, you know, the change in her is slightly different. Yes, she's a bit more. Define. she's obviously been a bit more physical than she would have been as a teacher but Mm. they describe it as this sort of otherness with her and again this sense of strength i think that's really what we see in barbara in this story is even though she doesn't do a whole lot we get to see that sense of strength and that will coming through
0: like i i get the the this feeling as of late and you've kind of just cemented it there is that imagine if if you know in real life the guitarist landed and out popped the first doctor and out popped ian and barbara and like you'd almost you would almost like be you know like in the aztecs where you'd view like this god and his two celestial attendants and you'd have barbara who would be like that almost matronly athena type character yeah whereas um Ian would be a a bit more jovial. Um, Just basically combine all the heroes together. And you get Ian. But it would be just kind of cool. And it would radiate off them I think.
1: Yeah. The thing that I I do think about from time to time is. If you were to do Ian and Barbara now.
2: Hmm.
1: How would they change? And with Barbara... I would pray they wouldn't change a whole lot. Do you know that they would? It would still be this, like I said, this untapped, unending well of just pure will to get her through everything. With Ian, you know, I could do with seeing, you know, a bronzed, muscly version of Ian. I'd have no complaint about that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> after, <laughs> after was it like two weeks ago's comment on the web planet about Ian's bum.
1: Hey, I can I can look. It's okay. <laughs> I'm not tying me back. Aside from the fact that you know this was nearly sixty years ago, and William Russell is now in his nineties. <laughs> but other than that, you know,
0: age is just a number. <laughs> um, honestly, like you know, are we talking about having them be teachers in the modern day, and then applying their story to modern modern Who yeah. storytelling? Honestly, I don't think they would get nearly anywhere as good a representation as they did back when it started,
1: due yeah, to the no nature
0: joy. of the due, due to due to the nature of the storytelling. Yeah, I know the Speaking of the the bronze Adonis, <laughs> oh, uh, before we move on to him, we should have a silent moment of prayer for Barbara's cardigan.
1: Yes, I will come back to Barbara's cardigan later. No, but um, rest in peace, cardigan.
0: Yes, you did rest your of job
1: right. <laughs> <laughs> so on to Ian. Ian, guns are not toys. Don't play with them like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He's stupid. He just.
0: That, yeah, but he but he like he like he's just recently been made into a knight. you know. He's a, he's living off the the rush of Death small, but I suppose.
1: <laughs> yeah, Ian. For me, in this story. He does two things which I would consider to be quite stupid. The first is playing with a gun like it's a toy. Mm -hmm. Particularly with a space gun that he doesn't know what it does. Yeah. The second, and this is meant with all of the love and affection in my heart, and you know it is, was probably his most paddy moment that I have seen to date. (laughs) Which was? Ian is a a very intelligent man. Yep. Why would he use his teeth to try and tear a cardigan when he has a knife in his pocket
0: yeah that is a very petty moment it's super petty
1: yeah <laughs> he's a very intelligent man but like that <laughs> image of him trying to tear the cardigan with his teeth and it's not that he's just, he's just gripping the edge of it trying to create a loose string no he's sticking his teeth into the middle of the cardigan
0: <laughs> just rah, just going to town on it
1: yeah, it is a very paddy moment. Mm. In a, in a uh, loving and kind way.
0: Yes, I I, I know. <laughs> are, are, there, are there any other kinds? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, one thing I'll say about Ian for this one is like, yeah, like, aside from, you know, sweater biting or card- cardigan biting. Like, I would view this as like the return of the action man. But this time it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a different twist because like... He seems a bit more. He's a bit more human in this one.
1: He's a bit more pissed.
0: Yeah, but that's what I mean. Like, is like his it's it humanizes him, like his frustrations, you know, coming to the boil. Like his unfortunate, you know, back and forth snapping with Barbara. It's I, this is a side of Ian that we haven't seen. I'd say, as you said, since the Daleks, and it just kind of reminds us that at the end of the day, Ian is still like he's a human man from nineteen sixty, like nineteen sixties London.
1: Yeah, like we. So you get to see him being action man again, but I think he's willing to do more in the story. We don't see him killing people. I don't think.
0: No, we don't, and that's actually the I, I think that again I, I like about Ian is that he never takes life unless it's absolutely necessary, like the way in the Crusade he like he just basically uppercutted that Saracen in the middle yeah. of a sword fight, and like. I think again like even when it came to the time that he did kill someone uh, Ixta he just kind of let Ixta's momentum take him over the side of the pyramid
1: yeah well I think with this story and like you said his frustrations coming to the boil and obviously we have the whole idea of like the context of this story and the idea of predestination and stuff like that I think this is the one story where he would have do you know. Mm. Um you know, his anger on seeing what they did to the doctor, his frustration with them not like unfreezing him faster and stuff like that. It is a very human side of Ian, which I think we kinda needed. Um you know, as much as we joke about Ian Chesterton, Action Man
0: mm-hmm.
1: Action Man is made of plastic. Yeah. And it's good to see that Ian isn't.
0: Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Ian Ian Chesterton's science bro doesn't really come to the fore in this one due to the cardigan biting.
1: Yeah. Seriously, dude, what the fuck? Like?
0: <laughs> we still love you, Ian. We still do, but dear God. Oh, I do.
1: I love you with like undying love and affection. Yeah. But Jesus Christ.
0: <laughs> so, how about we move on to our companions for the week? So.
1: Sure. So we have Tor, Ceta, and Daco. So do you have a mm-hmm. preference of order for the three boys?
0: Uh, so I'd say we'll start off with the man that we have personally met, <laughs> uh, yes. Thor, played by Jeremy Bullock.
1: Yes. Um, I have a question for you, Thor. What is this mm-hmm. powerful force that is drawing your hands to your hips? You look <laughs> like either you're posing for a superhero poster or you have forgotten the actions to I'm a little teapot. <laughs>
0: um i never actually noticed that i was kind of too taken aback by the um, every time they kind of focused on him it's like jesus christ like those those head ridges they're not quite cling on but they're just like i the way the subtle ways that they try to make someone look like an alien like in this particular uh story it's like god you're really running out of ideas aren't you or do you just not have the budget for it
1: yeah, well bear in mind that they're running around in what's basically a black polo shirt or a black like turtleneck black jeans and converse.
0: Yeah. All the money was spent on the morocks. <laughs> Fucking morocks.
1: Um, but yeah, no, if you if you take a look at it again, any time mm. he's stood still for more than about two seconds, his hands go to his hips. It's very funny to watch. <laughs> in fairness though for a gaggle of teenagers Mm. he's a very good leader you know he seeks and follows advice from others but he's not afraid to jump in and get his hands dirty I I liked him I thought he was really good except for the posing thing
0: yeah no he is a a good leader like that's the thing that I kind of have noted down here as well other than the fact that sometime in a a galaxy far far away a Mandalorian will be born of his blood (laughs) Um, but no, like, I noticed, like that he—he's like, a really good leader, in, and as you said, like pretty much. I think you might have read my notes in the sense of like he looks for advice, he doesn't discount it uh, when it's given, he looks at all the options, and I would have been very curious to see him join the crew.
1: Yeah, I think so. And this is when we get to the Time Warrior in the future. This is going to be a bit of a theme <laughs> with mm. poor Jeremy. Bullock? <laughs>
0: dear god just give Jeremy a chance take him on board
1: yeah no I think he would have been very interesting I think he would have been a good partner in crime for Vicky Mm -hmm. but then you have to consider the doctor is Vicky's partner in crime so Tor would kind of be unnecessary
0: yeah was it sorry there isn't enough room for you but it's it's huge (laughs) (laughs) sorry all full up (laughs) Sorry, it's taken off. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so moving on to Sita what are your mm-hmm. thoughts on Sita
0: I he's very you know, the other kind of reminds me of first elder and second elder from the censorites in the sense yeah. of like, he's a bit more of a pragmatist. Like even though like, he like still wants the same things, you know, for Thor and the rest of his people, he's the realist and. I would say like that he's he prefers to wait for the sure thing. But not in a cowardly way. More in a we have X amount of resources. Let's see the best way to utilize all those resources.
1: Yeah, I think he tries to be the voice of reason yeah. in the group. You know, the responsible one. Yeah. Um I do wonder how many ideas he has come up with only to see them dashed to sort of make him so reserved when it comes to action not that he won't take action but the fact that he has to you know like i said think things through and is this the best possible outcome i wonder how many ideas he has come up with or he has seen people try to implement only for them to fail
0: like you see this is the thing about this current era of doctor who and i, I think i made a comment about it oh, i i know i made the comment on and some on some other story but you would love to know what happens to these characters either before the adventure starts or afterwards, and like we've been told that the entire adult population of this planet has been wiped out. So like you'd be curious to see like how long ago it was, and if um, if Sita is uh, an actual part of that generation, like you know what was it a case of as you said like he had excellent like he had done tried so many plans and they were all like dashed. Or was it literally just the death of his parents that kind of turned him into the sort of uh, re- kind of pragmatist that he is, um, and I, 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 it comes down to the writing of like making these characters really believable and interesting, and I uh, for me, I honestly got a small bit upset when he was killed.
1: Me too. Um like in that same scene, we see Daco go down as well. Yeah which at first I was like, "Ah, oh, come on. Like he went through so much to get through all of that um, hmm. gas and Barbara helped him all the way and blah, blah, blah. Um, but then we see will get back up again. And yeah. you're, kind of, you're kind of waiting for Sita to also get back up. And then you yeah. realize he's not going to.
0: Like, again, oh, the hallmark of Doctor Who is that, on, on, like I kind of jumping the timeline a small bit, a quote from nine which is just this once everybody lives. Yeah. It yeah that it, it there's a reason that he had to say just this once.
1: Yeah, which is which is unfortunate.
0: And how about we move on to Daco?
1: Yeah, I have one line for him. no he's yeah. lovely in front of he he's great. Yeah. He, he's a lovely character. Um but the one line I have is that he goes to save the lady and gets saved by her in return.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I I I think he's like the baby of the group.
1: Mm, I can see that.
0: Uh, also, I think I mispronounced his name. I said Daco was supposed to Daco. So yeah, <laughs> don't get those, don't get those two names confused. Um, it's like I have a feeling that. You know, I think he is—he is the baby of the group, and he gets like the really easy assignments, which turn out unfortunately not to be quite so easy. You know, in the whole sense of, oh, you go and retrieve Barbara; she's in a, a secure location, yeah. like as in a, yeah that type of thing. Um, and kind of like you know when he—he he was the one that lived, as opposed to Sita. Again, it's the whole thing of he. That kind of lends itself to my the idea that he's portrayed as the baby of the group, and no one likes to see the the child suffer, you know.
1: Yeah, I think as well. Despite the fact if, that they're all kids. Yeah, I think as well as the idea that like, you know, you see it often in movies and TV shows, like the realist dying for the optimist. Yeah. To live type thing, do you know.
0: Yeah, or I can like. Yeah, I think in terms of the, the two archetypes dying for each other, realists die a lot more for optimists than optimists die for realists.
1: Yeah, because it's, it's, you know, helping drive home the realist point that this is not a game or this is real yeah. and you need to be wary and stuff like that.
0: So, on to the villains of the piece.
1: Yes, the Morrochs, or as they should probably be more aptly referred to, the Morons.
0: Yep, I was waiting to see which one of us would actually <laughs> come out with it first.
1: Yeah, this wasn't just us. <laughs> this is a, a very common uh, comment on these people. So we do, have Do you know what they most... actually... Rem- Sorry?
0: Do you they remind me of?
1: What?
0: Like a really inept version of the Cardassians.
1: Yeah, kind of. I got. Mm-hmm. I got. like, yeah.
0: That's why, like, yeah, that I, by the tone of your voice, you're like, really? I don't get quite, that's why I said inept.
1: Yeah, like, they're the oppressing force. Mm. Um, But I can see, you know, maybe when they first arrived on this planet, mm. them being a bit more Cardassian-esque.
0: Yeah, because like, I think that's one thing that gets really lost in the story is that the Space Museum is meant to be, like, a monument to the victories of the Morroc Empire. Yep. And like these are the guys that apparently can beat the Daleks so much so that they make a mon like that they have exhibits of them in their museum like I don't really get that from these particular representatives of this great empire,
1: yeah, no, neither do I. So if we talk about these particular representatives, do you want to talk about the security commander first or lobos lobos uh,
0: we'll do. Lobo, bring back Sheriff Lobo Um, no, do Lobos
1: so Lobos is a bureaucrat who clearly hates his job oh yeah who manages everything from his office and is not willing to put in any real effort at all
0: no like it's a small little backwater it's like I should be on to bigger and better things
1: (laughs) yeah, but at the same time he's at his office pressing buttons and mm. he never once leaves his office to figure out what the fuck is happening. He's like, No one's replying to me. Why is no <laughs> one replying to me? Oh well.
0: Yeah. It's like if things get if things get fucked up, I'll just blame someone else.
1: Yeah, the other thing about Lobos as well is that, you know, he clearly takes some sort of sick pleasure in capturing the doctor mm. But then he ruins it. So he's doing this great like sort of villain you know, uh, questioning piece. And then he ruins it by explaining how his super powerful freaking <laughs> machine works. Had he not explained how it worked, he actually may have got the answer he was looking for because at the start, it works really well.
0: <laughs> if you'll just wait here, Mr. Bond, I will wait as this slow saw starts to descend. Please don't push the button, that stops the saw.
1: Yeah, I was like, dude, you actually... You were doing good there for, as in good for a villain, for like a grand total of about 90 seconds. Yeah. And then you fuck it up by explaining how the machine works.
0: Like, he does not come across as threatening at all. Like, if anything, he just comes across as more of a, like, uh, how would he fucking be a thorn on the guy's side now? Like, or what will he do to just, you know, stall their inevitable victory type thing?
1: Yeah, and I wonder if his characterization and the characterization of the security mandate and the security forces in general,
2: hmm.
1: you know, if they had left in all of the humor that was meant to be in this, if it had been edited in a humorous way, would that have made more sense?
0: Yeah. I don't. Know, it, it reminds me of like you know those movies that they're done for such dramatic purposes, but the dialogue and the characters like it just comes across as, it's like that movie The Room. It's become like a huge cult comedy classic, despite the yeah. fact that it was meant to be like made as a serious movie.
1: Yeah, like if you think about it, like, I mean, at this point in the show, like this is these are episodes like what like seventy eight and seventy nine, eighty or something like that, um, in terms of production.
0: Close enough to it, I think
1: yeah so if you imagine like they're coming close to a hundred episodes mm. yeah. You know, and what do most sci-fi shows do with a hundred episodes they go one of two ways they either go super serious or mm-hmm. they take the piss out of themselves yeah was this meant to be them taking the piss out of themselves like this villain was he meant to be a funnier version of the guys we've seen before like if you imagine the guys from the keys of marinus um, hmm. from the... the, the civilised part of, of Marinus, oh, you know, the...
0: yeah, Milanus, yeah.
1: Yeah. Was, was he meant to be kind of a parody on them?
0: Maybe it's, like, meant to be some sort of thing of that, you know... maybe, like, the arrogance of empires. Yeah. Like, that after, after they've been in power for so long, they start to get lax. And, like, again maybe kind of make an allegory to like you know the roman empire is that like if you were put onto the furthest reaches of like the empire like as a in a position of authority it wasn't a um, always the highest honor yeah so shall we move away from labo which i'm not just going to call him (laughs) (laughs) uh if, if you can't take anything seriously i'm not going to take your name seriously um to the security commander
1: yeah i think the security commander is sick to shit of Lobo riding his ass and blaming him for everything
0: oh big time but do you know what the annoying thing about that is is that it's never followed up on it just seems like a waste of plot point
1: yeah like you kind of get the sense that he would stab anyone in the back to save his own ass mm. but we never see, other than like blaming one of the guards and giving them a giving him a stern talking to in front of the boss yeah, we never actually see that come out, but you kind of get the sense that he really could, you know, break, and do something seriously fucked up.
0: Do you know who he kind of reminds me of? And it kind of, maybe kind of goes against that that aspect of it. The first guy to get force choked by Vader in like a New Hope.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I can see that.
0: Yeah, he just has like this weird kind of. Arrogance about him, and it's like you know, like force shook me with you, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the way that it just comes across, you know. Um, but like himself and Lobos, they're they're, they're two of a kind in the sense of there's nothing about him that's like the, the type of character they're meant to be portray, yes, would be a viable threat, but the way that they come across come across in this story it's just not there for me
1: yeah no i agree with you i think it's a bit of a bit of a wasted opportunity with them
0: Hmm. um do we want to leave the real villain of the piece until we discuss the overall component of the story or do you want to just make an honorable mention to it now
1: it depends on who you mean
0: uh i would view the real villain of this piece is the concept of uh, fighting predestination
1: yeah, I think, I think we can do that in the overall, um, yeah. because there's, there's a very important point I want to make on that, <laughs> which, which directly affects my scoring of this episode. So yeah, I think we can talk about the concept of predestination in our overall discussion.
0: So, that's the characters covered, so we're now going to move on to our overall discussion. So, Trish, you lead us away.
1: I need to say this at the off. The -hmm. story is about predestination, and ask the question, can you change the future? They spend so long arguing over whether or whether or not they have changed anything, that they don't realise that the minute they began to unravel Barbara's cardigan, the timeline changed. In the case, she's wearing her freaking cardigan. In episode two, she has no fucking cardigan on. I waited the whole story for someone to point this out and nobody did. And it was so frustrating because I remembered the first time I watched the story and I thought they mentioned Mm. it. But literally for the whole story, they're walking around. Barbara has no cardigan on and they're like, oh, but what if this is what puts us in those glass cases i'm like well clearly barbara doesn't get in a case because she looks freaking different you idiot <laughs> it really bothered me it really bothered me um so you I mentioned in the previous section how predestination is the ultimate villain of this piece so hmm. rant over how about you talk about more about that and then we can circle back around to our scores because i need to calm down because the Bar- the barber cardigan <laughs> thing really fucking gets my goat
0: um so like predestination i think is a very interesting concept i uh, like to kind of go with because like you know that there's one one series uh, re- that i watch every so often is the show berserk and i remember i told you, i talked to you about if you're if you're given a choice, uh, or like you'll know, kill all your friends and accept your destiny, uh, and are you doing anything wrong? Do you remember we had that discussion?
1: Vaguely, when did Vaguely, we have this?
0: Yeah. Uh, I think it was close enough to Christmas time.
1: Okay, that was a long time ago.
0: Yeah, very long time ago. Um, in a different world. No, it's th- this thing is that. You've been presented with an outcome, and you've no idea like by staying do i do I prevent the outcome by going forward do I prevent the outcome like there's other stuff that that do it and uh, there was a line that kind of came into my head just there now when you were saying about the sweater um miles Dyson's wife in Terminator two, yeah, you know I was like but aren't aren't we changing it like aren't we changing it how, how it's supposed to go and like, I think the concept of the story is really, really cool. And the fact that, you know, we we discussed Barbara and Ian, like, actually properly giving out to each other. Like, it's it turns the guys against themselves. It actually cripples their abilities. Like, it makes them second-guess all their decisions. And I suppose it isn't until, like... It's just like when Vi- when Vicky arms the rebe- Like, well, one the cardigan. I suppose I never picked up on the cardigan. No, I'll be I'll be honest with you, right? That that that's my. I
1: clearly spend more brain. time ogling Barbara than you do. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: you you like What what do we call them now? Writerton? Yeah, that's what we're like. Yeah, you you you, you ogle Reiterton a lot. I think.
1: Yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs>
0: and like like you know to be fair like i can't argue that because they are ogle wordy, um but like i i I never kind of picked up on that i'll be 100% honest on that one um but i suppose it it may be one of those things like you know if you're in that scenario do you really think of these things ahead of time or like at the time
1: yeah i know that
0: could be viewed as a very flimsy excuse but i think that's the how i would rationalize their lack of wait a minute
1: yeah i mean given what you're saying about predestination the the effect that it had on the characters you know how just short they are with each other and things like that you can kind of explain mm. it away it will bother me till the end of time and again mm. i need to get the target novelization with this and see if they mention it there either because i'm convinced i saw someone mention it somewhere and i thought it was in the episode
0: now do you mean the end of time as in the actual concept of the end of time or do you mean the david tennant send-off
1: <laughs> After
0: which point, it no longer becomes an issue for you.
1: <laughs> no, the, the concept. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, what I think with this story, though, and I, I suppose I can stack way into my, my scoring at this, right? So I gave the story a 2.75. It would have been lower, but mm. the initial concept and the first episode were really engaging. I think it presented this you know this is going to be the first time we were seeing predestination for our characters do you know so we'd seen yeah. them in rome and we know that nero burns rome we know that historically mm. but this is mm. their personal timeline that we're seeing play out and so it was a really interesting concept however yeah. if you're looking for a good story that focuses on predestination there are so many others that do it better you mentioned terminator i mean half of star trek next generation was basically stories about hey we're stuck in a time loop we need to fix it um you know so you know the um stargate issue one episode where Tealkin and o'neill get stuck in this time loop there's so many ways that sci-fi has done it better and i'm sure doctor who has also done it better that i just think it was just it was such a wasted opportunity and again would it have been better if the humor was left in maybe i'd be interesting to read that original script i think
2: Mm.
1: but for such a you know mind fucking concept I think they dropped the ball massively. The cardigan yeah. being only the fricking tip of the iceberg on that. <laughs> the other thing with this is the villains are meh. The rebels are also meh. I mean, there are a bunch of teenagers who the, vil- who the villains that run wild, they-, they don't kill them off. They just force them to move along Like, they were a security guard at a mall getting some loitering teenagers to, you know, move on to a different shop or something. Um, There's no... You don't get any sense of danger between these two opposing factions. Yeah. Other than one has better dress sense. That's really about it. Like, they actually teach them... They actually treat them like... I wouldn't even say they treat them like hooligans because they don't even do that much. It's literally the Morocks are the bored security guards who want the teenagers to move on down to a different mall or move on down to a different store and stop bothering us. And that's it.
0: So who do you think has the better fashion sense? The Gary Glitter fan club or the Talking Heads guys? <laughs>
1: I'm more a fan of the Turtleneck and Converse.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, the, that was the thing. Like, it just looked like, like you know, the fans of two different bands or two different styles of music were just, like, getting into a disagreement. Um, because, like, no, like, the Morrox, they looked like members of the Gary Glitter Band. Like, with just, like, those weird, white, bulky shoulder pad outfits and their spiky hair. Um, I'm a bit... I suppose a bit more lenient or not lenient no lenient isn't the right word uh, I don't know what is the right word my score is 3.75 because oh wow. yeah, like, and I know I agree with you that there is a very there's a very kind of small so, not small soldiers toy soldiers the Will Wheaton movie yeah uh, feel about this you know with the the kids trying to rebel against the Morrox and I was like yeah like at the start I get the, the thing of you know like okay you have dissident groups why aren't you putting them down as opposed to just kind of you know come on shoo get away mm-hmm. but then obviously Boss makes the decision like, how about we just paralyze them all and that will make them easier to kill later in a while Um, but I kind of, what makes it stand out for me is with the obviously with the exception of Moros uh, Moros Mo, yeah like Moron uh, Boss, and the security commander mm-hmm i'm a real i'm a real big fan of the performances by all the cast in this story and i think that's what kind of netted the score for me is like we have ian and barbara's performances uh we have vicky's showcase we have the doctor having a whale of a time and like you know i'm always a big fan of the yoda doctor um and there is the thing of predestination
1: yeah i'll be honest I incorporated all those factors into my two point seven five. I I feel really bad given this such a low score, but you know you know different people are going to like different episodes and be like different things oh, like about yeah, different yeah. episodes. Um, the one thing that I came away from this story thinking, other than fuck the cardigan, was yeah. that I felt really bad that for me. As someone who was kind of struggling to accept Vicky in the group. Because I felt she wasn't doing much. Mm-hmm. I felt really bad that her powerhouse story. To me was so fucking forgettable. Like yeah. I. This episode come. If you're to buy the DVDs. This comes box up. With the chase. And just to give you some context right. The chase has two discs for the DVD release, because there's so much special features. The Space Museum has two special features. One quite sweet, it's William Hartnell's granddaughter talking about her grandfather. That's quite sweet. The second is called In Defence of the Space Museum. And is basically a fan saying how surely it can't be that shit
0: just give it a chance okay come on guys
1: (laughs) yeah so for me you know i don't i tend not to follow you know the norms of what everyone thinks is a good episode or not a good episode but i think for for this story i yeah i have to agree with the general populace
0: but that's always going to be the case like sure like even back when we first started like our very first episode like we were off on our scores like we were different on our scores about the unearthly unearthly child and then the Daleks so yeah I think it was time for a bit of a a, a disparity in the scores
1: yeah a random piece of you know possibly useless information for people to know in season one Mm -hmm. my average score for the stories was higher than yours yes so far for season two you're trending higher than me
0: interesting Mm. we shall have to see how season two ends yes we will although season two ends really weirdly from what (laughs) i remember i'm sure we shall we shall find out as we get there
1: yes so do we have anything else to add on the space museum
0: No, I'm pretty sure that we have gotten everything we wanted to get across, which is cardigans. Cardigans are very important.
1: Yeah, people need to pay more attention to Barbara's clothes.
0: Yes. For plot purposes, not just ogling.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's that's what I meant. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, join us next week when we will be discussing the chase
0: Ooh, <laughs> that's not my attempt at doing the team tune. That's meant to be a spooky sound. <laughs> so, until next week, guys, look after your cardigans, and we'll and we'll talk to you. Bye.
2: Bye. <laughs>